Are you still trying to reinvent the wheel? Tens of thousands of professionals have attempted to solve the same challenges you're dealing with right now. Some of them failed, some of them succeeded. But very few of them succeeded and captured their proven approach to share it with the world. Mike Kunkel is one of these very few. He has been an enabler for over 30 years and has captured his proven approach in an extremely successful framework called the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement. Mike and I have now translated the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement framework into a learning experience that helps a new generation of enablement teams fast-track their journey to sales enablement mastery. Our combination of group coaching sessions, actionable video lessons, materials, resources, networking opportunities and templates makes mastering sales enablement best practices faster and easier than it has ever been before. So if you want to stop reinventing the wheel, maximize business impact and fast-track your career, consider joining a growing community of enablers at the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement Learning Experience. To learn more, visit goffwd.com slash blocks. That's g-o-f-f-w-d.com slash b-l-o-c-k-s. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of This Month in Sales Enablement, dialing in live from Sydney, Australia. My name is Felix Kruger, I'm your host, and we have an action-packed agenda today again. And helping me today with her Roger Lodge brain, Dialing in straight from Cali, California. Please welcome Devin McDermott. Hello, hello. So excited to be here today. Devin, you came back. I'm so glad. <laughs> Me too. There's so much happening this month. I had to come back. <laughs> That's right. I wasn't quite sure until I hit record if you're actually going to dial in. You just saw me hanging out, waiting. That's right. That's right. So lots of things to cover, but before we get started, what's been happening? What's been going on in California? Oh my goodness. Well, we have the Coachella Music Festival happening just one town away from where I live. So this past weekend was the first weekend. It was absolutely wild. I didn't go to the event, but I got to sit in my window at my desk and just watch the crowds of people wearing their like wildly spectacular outfits. It's been pretty fun. And next weekend is the second weekend. So I'm just going to be camping out in my window and people watching. It's pretty wild. Amazing, amazing. I actually sat on the couch the other day with my wife and a notification popped up that there's a live stream of Coachella on YouTube. And so we, we actually dialed in. So uh, nice. we we're watching what's going on in your neighborhood. So it's awesome. <laughs> amazing. Who was your favorite act? <laughs> oh man, don't ask me for any uh, music acts these days. I'm old don't school. Worry. I'm stuck in the 90s still. 90s hip hop, that's my jam. I support that. That's usually yeah. my Peloton go-to 90s hip hop. I like it. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So lots to go through. We're going to cover the latest insights of the State of Sales Enablement podcast. As always, we talk about the latest news in the sales enablement space. And we will also talk about the latest social media bust that has been going on recently. So lots of ground to cover. So let's dive right in. I will share the first snippets from an interview that we had this month with a sales coach, Tyler Lindley. Let's take a listen. 
because what starts with strategy at the executive level or whether you're working with an outsourced resource or you've got a new hire that's come in, that new VP of sales who's driving the strategy, that's all great, but it's only as good as it's being implemented by the team. And how does that strategy end up in the day-to-day of your reps and what they're doing? That's where, to me, coaching comes into play. Coaching is all about the actual implementation of the strategy. It's about holding people accountable to the strategy. It's about what does that day-to-day actually look like, whether it's that phone call script, right? What is that SDR saying in the first 15 seconds of a cold call? Or what do our proposals look like, right? At the end of the process and everything in between, that strategy has to be coached. And you've got to nurture those reps over time. I see a lot of companies just focusing on one or the other. They've got great strategy. The team does it for a little while. The next thing you know, they get tired of doing it that way and they fall back into whatever they were doing before, whatever those old habits were. All right. So Tyler's angle is particularly interesting, I think, because he comes from a coaching background and he's really focused on actually translating the high level sales strategy into day-to-day behaviors and actually being that connector between the strategy and the actual implementation, which I find something that is so, so crucial. I personally have come across so many strategies that were then executed purely and therefore didn't deliver the results. And also me now running a consulting business, I think I'm also more aware and retrospectively also looking at some of the consulting projects that companies that I work for have done, even with the big four consultancies. What you see over and over again is that it is I wouldn't call it easy, but it's easier to develop a coherent strategy that makes sense on paper and sounds logical. But then when it comes to the actual implementation, that's when it all falls apart. And I see that happening (laughs) over and over again. What's your experience, Devin, on that front? Like when it comes to actually implementing strategy and what sort of role do you see coaching play in that? I think it's spot on. And so I listened to the the whole podcast because I just thought it was full of so many nuggets. And I wrote down in bold letters, coaching is the implementation of the strategy. Like it has to happen. We have to hold people accountable. And I've seen it go exactly the way you described, Felix, where we have a great idea. We have great resources. We have the perfect plan for execution. We do our training. And then the organization says, we just need to get folks doing this fast. We don't have time for coaching or don't worry. I coach in all of my meetings. And then to your point, we see it all fall apart reps revert back to the behavior that they're comfortable with. They go back to the deck that they really liked. Managers aren't continuing to grow and develop their teams, and they aren't continuing to inform its strategy improvements. And I think coaching kind of gives you that full view of, okay, are people doing this the way we want them to? Are they using the right resources, the right approach? And is this actually working? Is this the right approach? And then providing feedback to the organization. So coaching is kind of like, the linchpin, the connector to say, like, we have this amazing strategy. We're all geniuses. Is it actually working? If not, how do we change it? So I think it's so crucial. I was really thrilled with his approach here. Is every company doing it this way? No, I wish they were. I wish I was able to do this all the time. But this got me really like pumped up and motivated. And you mentioned feedback from the people on the ground, frontline sales, feeding back what is happening in markets. And do you think this feedback is actually being used to adjust strategies or is it just a question of forcing the implementation and just make it work no matter what? Like, what do you see? Is there an openness to actually utilize that feedback loop to be more flexible and to adjust the strategy according to what the market tells you? Yeah, I think if you have the right alignment cross-functionally, and we're going to talk about the importance of all that in a little bit, 
But if you have all the players that are involved in defining and deploying and building into the strategy and open to receiving feedback on it, I think it can be incredible. And again, like we do it in pockets in my organization. Like we build in gong call reviews tied to the specific initiative. We build in like peer coaching exercises and something called field advisory board, which I know a lot of other enablers do, where we bring in the sales leaders, the product marketing team, the marketing team to share like, okay, here's what we're finding. Let's look at the insight. Let's listen. And so we're kind of trying to build that well-oiled machine, but it's not always possible to do that. And again, if you have an organization that's so focused on speed, we got to do this fast. We got to keep going. That's the thing that gets cut, right? The feedback, the coaching. So I think it's possible. And I think if you have an openness through that, like well-aligned strategy, you can make it work. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes it's neglected because it's not sexy. Yeah. And it's not fun. <laughs> yeah. So the secret to success, make the coaching part sexy and make feedback sexy. I think. Yeah. That's how you can make sure that all the effort that you put into developing the strategy is not wasted, which is a very real risk, I believe. Yeah. I mean, like not a sports person, but I always think about the Olympics and like you have a figure skater who's doing flips and twirls and like they didn't watch a video on figure skating and then go do it and like win an Olympic medal. No, they watched a video. They tried it. They were coached. They changed their approach. They watched a video of themselves. I mean, months, years of practice, feedback, all of that to change and shift their strategy to become these elite athletes. But we expect people like, well, we gave you a 20 minute training. Why aren't you amazing? Why aren't you doing everything we want you to do? It doesn't make sense. Absolutely. I think even more true in team sports where you have to adapt to the opposition, the strategy for your play style and the tactics that you utilize throughout the game might be something that you discuss up front. But yeah. then not coaching is the equivalent of not having a coach on the sideline actually helping you to adopt to what's happening, right? So, yeah. That's one of the examples, and we'll have another one later on, but one of these examples where best practice from certain areas can be transferred into a sales context. So I think it's something that I'm a real big fan of, and that is certainly true from a sports point of view in that context. Yeah. Let's move on to the next snippet. For anybody who's heard me talk about Anthony Sork, who was my guest in that episode, knows that I'm a true fanboy, and that doesn't happen very often, but I have, I think throughout my career, I did a rough calculation somewhere between 150 and 200 training courses. And I'm somebody who consumes a lot of training content. And I think Anthony Sork's leadership course is for me in the top three of the most useful courses I have taken that have truly changed the trajectory of my career. The concepts that he has talked about in his workshop is still something that are very present to me. And it was really a highlight to have him on the show because yeah, it was about 10 years ago that I took his training course and I've been able to reconnect with him and realize he lived just around the corner from me, which is quite funny. Oh, And we didn't record it in person, but yeah, he's pretty much a neighbor and I very much respect his approach. And let's take a listen what he had to say. So the leadership behavioral impact has the single greatest impact on team climate up to 80%, actually, or in fact, just over 80% of a team climate comes from leadership behavior, not leadership competency. All right. So with that one, this is one of the core concepts that he uses as a basis for his leadership training. And just to illustrate the difference for those who are not aware between leadership competency and leadership behavior. So leadership competency is kind of the technical skills, so to speak, that you need to be in a leadership position. So that is things like interpreting financial statements, that is the way you run meetings with stakeholders, 
that is the way you put a strategy on paper and so on. But when it comes to the actual team climate, none of that or hardly any of that actually matters. All that matters is your day-to-day behavior of interacting with the team and the sort of behaviors that you display, meaning your leadership style. And Anthony typically talks about a range of leadership styles. One at the end of the spectrum, you have the highly directional style, which you would typically find in the military or any sort of life or death situation where there's real urgency and things have to get done a certain way right now in the exact way a leader wants it to happen. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the highly democratic leadership style where a leader might ask, hey guys, what do you think? What's everybody's opinion? And then you do a vote on what the best approach is moving forward. That is obviously also not ideal because you spend a lot of time and a lot of responsibility of the leader is handed off to the group. And unless you have some sort of team of geniuses and you are aiming to build some sort of hive mind in your organization, that is probably not the approach you want to go with either. And from the kind of approach that Anthony preaches is the manager as a coach, meaning that the manager sets the direction in agreement with the direct reports. And then you have a collaborative approach in the sense that the leader actually helps coaching the staff to the results that they're after. This is the sort of behavior that is needed to really make people arrive at solutions themselves and actually do some thinking for themselves to arrive at a solution and realize the potential as a worker and as a professional. If you think about the other end of the spectrum, the first end of the spectrum that I mentioned earlier, which is highly directional, you also deliver results on that front, according to Anthony, but you never realize the potential of somebody. I think that that sort of leadership or that sort of coaching approach that he mentioned is something that has been highly impactful for my position, managerial positions, and obviously also in terms of interacting with sales staff and coaching sales staff. What's been your experience in terms of different leadership styles? And have you seen in your career the leadership styles evolving more to the coaching space from a more directional space? What's been your experience? It's been, what's the expression, a mixed bag. Right. Very little consistency. And I think it also depends on the organization, the level of the leader. But there is one interesting thing that I wanted to flag on this because last month at Sales Enablement, we talked about the great resignation. And that people leave jobs for you know a number of reasons, but the main reason being bad or ineffective managers. And I think listening to Anthony on your podcast, having a manager who is collaborative, who's questioning, who doesn't have all the answers, again, like that coaching approach, feels so much more comforting as an employee because you're like, ah, they don't have all the answers. I don't have to have all the answers. I'm allowed to question, to not be the smartest person in the room. And I've definitely had leaders who like, you were afraid to say the wrong thing or say, I don't understand what that acronym means or what that document is. And that creates a really scary work environment. But on the surface, it's like we're having healthy one-on-ones. Everything seems great, but I have this deep fear of not being smart enough for my leader. But I think that like coaching, collaborative leadership style also aligned to a very tight strategy and vision for the team is a game changer. Now, I've also seen that the coaching style where there isn't a clear strategy, there isn't a clear mission, also kind of backfire because what are you working towards? You're not aligning on that joint vision and that path forward. You're kind of maybe fumbling in different directions, but you do have that open, honest communication with your leader. So I'd say for me, it's truly been a mixed bag, but I've had some incredible collaborative leaders as coaches, and those are the healthiest, happiest work environments. Yeah. 
I think, honestly, investing and teaching people how to be leaders and how to be good managers is the best investment mm -hmm. almost a organization can make because you spend so much money on staff and then obviously you spend premium mm -hmm. on leaders. And if you don't teach those people how to be good leaders, you waste that investment. And it also has that negative cultural impact on their team. So I think any investment in training is essentially protecting that investment that you make in your people. And I think it is so, so powerful. So you can tell I'm a true Anthony Sork fanboy. And I love it. If not with Anthony's business, I would still recommend any company that really values leadership styles and their leadership culture as a foundation for the overall business culture to invest in that space. So I think it's so, so important. This was selfishly like very helpful for me. We're building our manager training program now, our manager enablement program. And I am laser focused on competencies. I'm like, these are the competencies, these are the skills. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so zoomed in, not thinking about how are they missed to practice. And I've definitely hired people that on paper and even in like a stand and deliver presentation are perfect. And then they step into role and I'm like, oh my gosh, they don't know how to manage their stakeholders. They don't have any strategy. Like it's shocking. So this was for me, I'm like, wake up, Devin, there's so much more than what you're thinking. So I'm excited to dig into some of Anthony's work. So thank you. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I think that's also just on another note, if we think about that stereotype of the best salesperson being promoted into managerial positions, I think that is also one way to mitigate those issues. People, I think a lot of times, especially on LinkedIn, that is that meme that's going around, you know, you shouldn't promote just your salesperson into managerial positions. I think it might be true to a certain extent, but it is especially true if you don't provide that sort of training. If you provide that sort of training, I would say, sure, go for it. If that person doesn't fall into the trap of still being highly directional and taking their own approach as gospel for the rest of the team, I do think that's a way to mitigate that. But that's just a side note. I couldn't agree more. The next item that we have on the agenda was something that you have flagged around stress in the sales industry. What is that all about? Yes. So since this is this month in sales enablement, April is stress awareness month. And I don't know about you, but personally, I am extremely aware of my stress every second of the day, every single day of my life, because like many folks, I am stressed all the time. And I know this is not a good thing. And I know also that it is not something to celebrate. But I also know that I have the power to take this into my own hands and to deal with it in a meaningful way. And usually that's by reminding myself to like pull my shoulders out from my ears and unclench my jaw because that's much more productive. But I think as we know, stress is ever present in the workplace. And I think it's really exacerbated now with folks dealing with this idea of having to return to offices across the globe and it's stressing people out. So there are a couple of topics and updates and this was shared by the medic team on LinkedIn. It's incredibly straightforward. It's a nice little kind of infographic. They share some tips from the Stress Management Society on managing stress as a seller. And what they highlight is that stress management at work can sometimes feel just completely impossible, especially for folks in selling roles, which we all know can be high intensity, high stakes, always on. And selfishly, enablement feels similar stress by proxy, right? We're supporting this very high profile team in the organization. So finding ways that we can take control of our stress can help us create some order from the chaos that exists. And so some tips include staying organized, collaborating with peers on those really like complex or arduous tasks, taking breaks, planning ahead and eating healthfully. And on paper, this is all great. Very simple. Just do all of those things. But I think we know 
those life hacks and breaks don't always do the trick, right? They're not a silver bullet. They're not a magic cure-all. And as I was going through my stress awareness month research, I came across a tweet from Adam Grant, who's an organizational psychologist and author. Basically, he says, vacations and perks aren't cures for exhaustion. They're temporary bandages to stop the bleeding. The first principle of fighting burnout is to reduce demands and to stop overloading teams with stressful tasks and expecting one person to do multiple jobs. So that one got me. I was like, yep, this is true. And it got me thinking about Anthony's podcast episode too on leaders and creating healthier, unhealthy climates for their team. So Adam's tweet kind of stuck with me because very often in enablement roles, companies are going to hire one person to do it all. And I think most of us have been in that role as a team of one, trying to prove ROI for our role and program. And it seems to be the strategy from what I'm seeing that a lot of companies are employing when they bring in new enablement functions, which can make it really difficult for that team of one to delegate, to take a step back, to work with peers or take a vacation. Sometimes it's impossible to do those things when it's all on you. So the reason why I brought this up as kind of like an, an impromptu quote is to highlight that these tips are amazing, but it's not always easy to step away or to take a break. And hopefully, Felix, all hope is not lost. There are things that we can do. So I know you had flashed on the screen finding joy in any job. And I think this is a good segue into this next piece of media. I'm going to keep this update very brief because I think that everybody listening should take a listen to this podcast. It got me thinking about joy and bringing joy into my like work and into my day-to-day -day in a very different way. So your super quick highlight is, this is a limited podcast series from the HBR IdeaCast. It's hosted by Allison Beard, who's the chief executive or the executive editor at the Harvard Business Review. And it's gonna be airing throughout the month of April for Stress Awareness Month. And the goal of this podcast is to make people aware that their existing work situations can be better and give them tips for how to make it better for themselves. And the tips are provided by a researcher called Marcus Buckingham. And it's his POV on finding out what makes people happy and using that to help them curate these incredible experiences in the workplace. So the, the gist of it is there are factors within our organization that contribute to happiness or cause stress and a feeling of being disconnected. So the three things are that can lead to us feeling disconnected or stressed are the erosion of trust. And I think the stat that he gives is like 14% of people feel that they can trust their direct leader in their organization. I almost died when I saw that. And it's also right in line with what Anthony was talking about. The other thing he mentions is the breaking down of teams and not having teams available to help complete tasks or activities. And the third one is the emphasis on conformity. So again, pretty similar to what we were just talking about where businesses have competencies, career ladders, 360 performance reviews that are the perfect path to being successful and happy in your job. But we're not cogs in a machine and we might not fit into those tidy boxes, but that doesn't mean that we're not worthy. And so I don't want everybody to be like completely bummed out by that and by those stats. The idea is that we can find things that we can do every day on a regular basis that are rewarding, that make us feel like we're highly productive, that get our dopamine going and our oxytocin flowing. And those tasks are going to be different for everyone. So Felix, you and I are both enablement managers at the same company. We might both be amazing at our jobs, but we might have those different little moments of joy where we execute on different tasks differently or we take on certain tasks that other folks don't because again it's that like moment of excitement and joy that can be a stress relief for us 
So the one thing I want to leave us with, because again, I, I do want everybody to listen to this podcast because it was really helpful for me. And there are some amazing examples of how you can, again, bring this into your own life. But they ask, like, how much power do employees have to modify their job and the work that they're doing to make themselves more satisfied? And, and I think it depends on the person and the manager and the company. But again, we don't need all those people to make us happy. We can do it ourselves. So. That's your micro machine super quick update on stress awareness, which hopefully didn't stress you out. But Felix, I want to know from you, is there anything that you do or tactics you employ to manage your stress and maybe some things that other folks can try out? Yeah, absolutely. So I used to be extremely stressed all the time, especially early on in my career, because I'm just by nature very ambitious and I just try to realize my goals by just taking on everything that I could get my hands on, right? And I think over time, I just realized that it's not sustainable. What's really helped me was a few things. So number one, I talk about this a lot, but I essentially went through that transformation of being somebody who follows that pattern of random acts of enablement to strategic sales enablement, right? So I, I used to respond to everything that landed on my desk right in that very moment and try to fight all the fires. And I used to be a quota carrying sales enablement person as well. So I then had to be involved in pitches and, you know, at the same time, operations and had to uh, manage up and all of those things. And then came a situation where my boss resigned and I was essentially just managing the entire portfolio with eight figure revenue targets by myself, just essentially leaving the office, coming to work at 8 a.m. in the morning and leaving the office at 10 p.m. at night every day, which was just crazy. No. And <laughs> You know, I transformed my approach to being more strategic in a way that it's more deliberate and it's more about setting up the structures and involving stakeholders and actually delivering sales enablement initiatives. That's from a sales enablement specific point of view. That's kind of what lowered my stress levels significantly by a thousand percent. Then on top of that, I think what's really helped me over time is perspective. So I think we are in a very privileged position that we are not serving lives yeah. We're not trying to cure world hunger. There's nobody dying if we don't get that last email out, especially if you hear the kind of things that healthcare professionals have to deal with throughout the pandemic. I think that really puts things in perspective. And then on top of that, if you go beyond the professional context, if you see what's going on in the world and you've got a war going on in the Ukraine and people are literally walking hundreds of kilometers with all their belongings and shopping bags trying to reach the the border, you have people in Afghanistan trying to escape the country and crowding around the airport. We are essentially in the top 1% of the world in terms of the sort of wealth and the sort of infrastructure that we can benefit from. And the sort of things that we believe are problems aren't really problems, I think. That perspective has helped me a lot. And then on top of that, also what was briefly touched on in that post around eating healthy, I think for me, it's mainly sleep. I came to realize over the years and I'm actually a person that needs a lot of sleep to perform on a really high level and prioritizing yeah. that has also helped me to reduce my stress level significantly. If you don't sleep well, you're more emotional, you overreact to certain things, you're just more easily agitated. And I think prioritizing sleep and really realizing the power of sleep, Ariana Huffington, I know is somebody who advocates for that. When she first came out and I used to look after 
sales for the Huffington Post in Australia, actually, as part of my job back at the media company that I used to work for. And everybody was kind of like laughing how it's that rich person telling everybody to sleep more. (laughs) (laughs) In that context, yes, but yeah. (laughs) That's right. That's right. But I think over the years, I actually came to realize that there's some truth in it. So I truly believe that we should prioritize sleep because it has a really big impact on our performance and also on our stress levels. So that's probably my last stress hack that I want to share. I love that. I just heard a stat the other day that sleep deprivation can impact you like as though you've had a number of alcoholic drinks. So like your cognitive function is impaired, your ability to think reasonably, your emotions are all skewed. So that's great feedback. And like take a step back. That's right. Look at the world around you. Be grateful. Learn when to say no and get a lot of sleep. I like it. (laughs) On that note, a change of pace. We had a new Gardner report coming out. (laughs) Oh, it's a doozy. All right. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually not a report. It is the chief sales officer, I would call it magazine. They do release some sort of first party research that they run as part of that. But there's also a lot of Gardner approach information in there. So it's not a report as such. It's sort of a medley of sales information that Gartner releases. And one of the things that they covered, they ran a survey with the CSOs, the chief sales officer priorities for 2022, and the percentage of CSOs rating each initiative, either high priority or critical priority. And there's a list of things here in this line graph. And for anybody who follows me on LinkedIn, they might have seen my rant about this, but what really became obvious to me looking at this graph was that there was essentially only one item that was focused on the customer. And it's this item here, improving the customer buying experience. And there's one, two, three, four items that seem to be more important than that. And there's a bunch of other ones that are kind of equal. And all the other ones are pretty much focused on the organization itself, so improving Pipeline creation and sales development is number one. Number two is increasing returns on key strategic global accounts. Number three is improving account management and account-based strategies. And four is improving sales manager effectiveness. So what really stood out to me here is that with all the talk around bias and centricity, I think it is very poor form to formulate CSO priorities in a way that they're really focused on the organization itself. And I I really wished that we would start using different language when talking about goals for organizations on that front and be really not only biocentric in the way we project ourselves to market to the things that we talk about, but also act like it on a day-to-day and also internal conversations really use that wording that is biocentric and really ask ourselves with each of these things that we want to prioritize, what is the benefit to the buyer and really bring that point home when we communicate those priorities as well. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's spot on. And so often like companies preach, you know, customer is our number one focus and we're the customer success organization. But so much of what we're doing is all about us from the way we're pitching to the way we're servicing to the way we're engaging. And It's concerning to me because it's a buzzword. And so I think everybody's jumping on the bandwagon. But to your point, the way it's reflected here and the way that I think organizations actually build strategies around that are definitely not quite there yet. They're leaning into the buzzword, but they're not engaging in it actively. That's right. Yeah, I think it's a mindset shift. I think for sales leaders in particular, if you talk about being biocentric all the time and, you know, everybody's talking about 
how sellers should be helping, not selling. I think it really starts on top. And I think there's a cultural shift required also from a sales leadership perspective that is being articulated in that sort of way that we talk about certain initiatives as something that benefits the buyer. And then uh, the secondary consideration should then be what is actually the benefit to the sales organization. So I think that sort of shift is really required. And actually this report or this survey also prompted me to record a podcast episode with my uncle on buyer centricity. So that is coming up next month. So anybody who's keen to hear my uncle's thoughts on that topic, please make sure to subscribe to the State of Sales Enablement. That episode is coming up next week. I'm excited for that. On that topic in the magazine or report, they did talk about how success comes down to a strategic organizational planning, go to market alignment, but also using that to fuel a well-orchestrated and holistic customer engagement approach. And again, I think like some companies get part of that, right? They focus on on one piece versus the other, or again, they speak the language of customer centricity and, and a customer focused approach, but they don't quite get there. I'm actually headed to an offsite with my other cross-functional leaders tomorrow to kind of talk about this topic where we're leaning into not only like a buyer journey, but what are the buyer journeys? Who are our buying groups? What do they care about? How can we make sure that we understand their challenges, their problems, their goals, and really focus on curating an experience that feels very unique and very intentional for the specific individuals we're talking to in the buying group, but also still creating an engine that scales. So making sure that we don't skew the like, We want to create a, what feels like a bespoke experience for every single customer, but how do we create the engine that fuels that experience where again, we're leading with the customer in mind, we're focused on how they can benefit from what we're doing, but we're also not just doing something different with every single customer interaction. So we're trying to like bridge that gap and reimagine our approach. No, no, of course it has to be repeatable, right? I mean, the ideal case is that you create all the content from scratch for every buyer and you treat every buyer. As an individual, at the end of the day, we're talking to markets and you have to uh, talk to segments, right? To make the business sustainable. I I guess, yeah, as you said, there's a sweet spot, but I think a lot of organizations are not even close to that. And I think that sort of work that you described that you will do at your offsite is, I think, so, so crucial in actually creating the foundation to then use the buyer journey to overlay a sales process, to then overlay a methodology and then really identify the gaps on what's being needed for the sales team. So I think. That is time certainly well spent for you guys. I might need a sneak peek of your mic episode to make sure I'm focusing on customer centricity. (laughs) I'll send it through. I'll send it through. (laughs) And where's the offsite? You guys are not going to Coachella, are you? You know, I wish I'd get my flower (laughs) crown ready. Uh, No, we're going to San Francisco, so it should be good. Not too far. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So next up, we have a announcement around what Zoom is doing in the AI space and also through your work. You're very familiar with the AI space. What's happening there? What is Zoom doing? Well, Zoom announced, I think it was on April 13th, that they are entering the revenue intelligence space. They're bringing out something called Zoom IQ, and they keep adding a lot of new functions and features to Zoom. But this one is really interesting. So for me, and I think for a lot of my other enablers, the one piece of technology I cannot live without is call recording. For the teams I support, for me, it gives us direct access to the customer journey, but also, as we talked about before, it gives us a very easy way to test messaging decks and plays to see what's working and makes coaching easier and all that good stuff. But I'm not pitching you on call recording. We're talking about Zoom. So it seems like Zoom is doing a lot to stay ahead of the curve and stay relevant. As we said, folks are moving back to hybrid and in-office work. 
and maybe relying slightly less on web conferencing and, and the tech that made Zoom kind of the star of the pandemic. But like as most players in the revenue intelligence space, Zoom is using some of the same like buzzwords and features with different names to draw comparisons of their new offering and features to Gong and Chorus. And so I don't know if you've seen this trend. I, it's nothing groundbreaking, but a lot of companies are building or bringing in their own revenue intelligence or call AI software, among other things. And I know LineTickle is doing that with their homegrown solutions for not only call AI, content management, and so on. And Saleshood has their, I think it's the correlation engine. And I love the idea of these companies trying to become like the one-stop shop, the CMS call recording, LMS, and everything all in one. And I know that's where things are heading, but it does feel like folks are trying to do everything at once and they're not really able to go head to head with a lot of the point solutions. So they're bringing, let's say, web conferencing and call AI into one place, but it's missing some of the bells and whistles that some of us are relying on. So I think Zoom is going to be banking on this like one unified platform for everything you need. We'll see how it turns out and how effective it is. I personally like want to keep using the best solution for each thing I'm doing, which that's a pain in the neck as well. But very quickly on the Zoom front. So I'm not too sure about the specifics of what they're actually bringing into market. But in the TechCrunch article, which is definitely worth a skim for anyone listening, I think they acquired Kites, which is something that does real-time transcription and translation. They're also building in a homegrown solution to amplify the work that Kites does. And they also mentioned, and as you talked about Persado, domain-specific natural language understanding. And so what they're saying this does is really allows you to understand the sentiment of buyers and teams to help inform the decisions that companies are making internally. So it sounds really incredible. I know they've been testing out some of this AI and some of this tech in like your classic Zoom meeting. So I'm very curious to see how this works. I am going to set up a demo with them to see what it's all about, and we'll report back. Awesome. I think it's really interesting that they are moving into that space. And I think it's still crazy to think that Skype used to be a thing, right? And how much head start they had, and they've completely failed to capitalize on all the I things know. that have been going on. So Zoom came out of nowhere and is now basically the category leader. But yeah, I think it's smart for them to uh, expand it to other areas. And especially considering that sales can't happen these days without video conferencing. It makes yeah. sense for them to do that. But as you said, I think the question is always, if you become a generalist, can you still be really mastering certain parts of your solution? And I think, of course, if you have a generalist solution, the benefit that you always have is that it can grow with your internal capabilities and you don't have to source and onboard new vendors all the time. So that's some efficiency that you create. But I do believe that... Personally, I mean, my business is a small business, so it's not really something that is really on the agenda for FFWD, but I think my preference in the past has always been to just source solutions that have really strong KPIs and then basically have a microservice infrastructure in a sense that you always pick the best from each category and then integrate it in the way that you need it. That's not always possible. So depending on what your challenge is, it still makes sense to have that big solution and source that one-stop shop. But I think all of those providers that are really rapidly growing into all kinds of different areas, they still need to make sure that they tick the box for a certain standard. And I think it's sometimes jeopardized in a way that they move into too many different directions. So I hope for Zoom, if anybody from Zoom is listening, I hope that's not the case for the folks at Zoom, but there's certainly the risk there. Yep. I couldn't agree more. 
The next article I want to share with you is from BCG and so Boston Consulting Group. The article headline reads, why your agile coaching isn't working and how to fix it. And I think this particular article, it talks about agile coaching, which is a methodology that's more used in the IT space. So it's agile development. But as we mentioned earlier, we use the analogy around sports. And I think this is another case of where you actually have the solution for certain problems right at your fingertips. And this is an opportunity for coaching in the sales space to actually benefit from the agile coaching that is happening in the IT space. Agile coaching has been around for quite some time and a lot of progress has been made there and a lot of work has been done there to become more sophisticated in the agile coaching approach. So I think that is certainly something that is worth looking at from a sales perspective. And what this article particularly looks at is different approaches to coaching or viewpoints from a coaching perspective that can actually make coaching work better for an organization. So the three that they are mentioning here, coaching as an investment. So really making sure that coaching is being viewed from a business perspective and the business outcomes are really core focus of that. Again, probably more true for sales than it is for IT, but I think this is still something important to keep an eye on. I think there's probably more the focus if the coaching is done by sales leaders and sales enablers. But once you have a coaching culture in place, the coaching activity might take place. That's then where the focus and the business focus is really being diluted. Because if everybody is coaching everybody all the time, <laughs> what's the actual goal? What's the ROI? It's nice that it's there and I'm sure everybody's improving, but it's hard to put your finger on what the actual return is, right? So I think that's important to focus on coaching as a pack they mentioned here, which is quite an interesting concept. So what they mentioned here is that you essentially have a team of coaches that is being deployed with different focus areas and different seniority levels that is being deployed to solve specific issues or specific performance gaps across the business. Uh, it is an interesting approach. I think if you are a more well-resourced sales enablement team like yours, Devin, as I know you're building your, um, your sales enablement empire at the moment with lots of new hires. So I think for better resource sales enablement teams that have multiple coaches, that is a possibility to look at actually building that pack that is being deployed. And then the third one that they mention is coaching through interventions, meaning that you really identify a particular issue within a team and then deploy that pack or the coach to solve that issue in a sprint. So you're essentially intervening. You're seeing that if you put that into a sales context, that there's an issue within a particular team at a certain part of the sales process, you're trying to fix that issue. And then you really have a coaching sprint and you really try to get at the bottom of that issue and really try to solve that within a, let's say two week sprint, you focus on, let's say discovery meetings and really try to nail those within those two weeks and really change behavior on that front. So. I think a few interesting concepts here, they elaborate in this article and there's always everything that we talk about on the show. We also put in the show notes of the podcast, if you're interested. And another interesting part of this article was also the, the warning signs, your agile coaching is in trouble. I think this could easily be the warning signs that your sales coaching is in trouble as well. What they mentioned here is coaches overstay their usefulness. So essentially that they go above and beyond the sort of problem that is being identified and just keep on coaching like crazy without really focusing on the issue. 
coaches are not given sufficient direction. So there's a direction being defined by leadership and it's not hundred percent clear about what the issue is that needs to be solved and they're just being deployed just for the coaching's sake. Budgets aren't set. So again, comes down to the ROI of the coaching initiative. Metrics aren't tracked, a massive one. So I think that's one that's not being focused on in most organizations, even those that do have a coaching program in place, oftentimes that's being neglected. So really the focus on what is the metric that we want to impact and what's the metric that we want to change. Agile methods are inflexible or chaotic. That could easily be the sales methods are inflexible or chaotic. So basically the range between having a highly defined sales process and playbook that you don't deviate from and have no flexibility or on the other end of the spectrum, everybody's winging it all the time or the business opts out, meaning that you essentially don't have the commitment from a business to a coaching program and there's no real support from senior management on that front. So. I think, again, one of those cases, this article where you look at other parts of business in general and work that has been done in the IT space that you can really leverage from a sales perspective, highly interesting. We'll drop the link in the show notes. Now, the last segment of the show that we look at now is the social media bus, which is always interesting because I know there's oftentimes people featured that are also listening to this podcast. So always great to show what people are doing on that front. And the first item is what Stephanie Sorabian has been doing with her job board. Absolutely love it. Everybody knows there's a massive talent shortage going on in sales enablement at the moment, particularly in the APEC region. And I think it's great to have more and more sources around actually jobs being advertised. So people can enter sales enablement, sales enablers find greater work environments for themselves and businesses find better sales enablers to boost their sales effectiveness. And looking at Stephanie's post, I really have to pick up my emoji game as well. Oh, I think yeah. She's definitely leveled up on her emoji effectiveness. Lots of great jobs there. So I think not only for this particular post, but Stephanie's content in general, I think it's really worthwhile following her. She will also be featured on the podcast. I've interviewed her recently. So again, if you're keen to hear more about Stephanie, especially what she's doing in the sales enablement space, definitely make sure to subscribe. And there was also another post from the sales enablement collective. They are also launching a job board. So again, something that's really worthwhile checking out if you're in sales enablement and you're looking for a new role, or if you're a business wanting to advertise roles. And I have come across a lot of businesses that have been struggling to recruit for sales enablement roles, which is part of the reason my consulting business exists as well. So we're bridging that gap <laughs> on that front. But we would always say ultimate goal should always be to hire a senior sales enablement person. Devin, tell me, you're also really embedded in the sales enablement space and you talk to a bunch of sales enablers out there. Do you find there's still that talent shortage going on? Yes. I was going to say, like, first of all, I love this job board. I know she just posted an update today. And as an enabler, the good news is there are so many open roles, but as a hiring manager, the bad news is there are so many open roles and people have so many options. So I'll get to a first call with somebody and they're like, I have three other offers. How fast can we move? And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is not how my brain works. So there's definitely a shortage, I think, but because there are so many openings, which is really, really exciting. I mean, I'm seeing people post two and three enablement openings for their companies each week, which is amazing, but it's been taking quite a long time to staff up our enablement team. So I think the, the shortage is real, but there are some incredibly talented folks out there. So 
we'll find our stars. <laughs> That's right. What sort of roles are you advertising at the moment? We are hiring a sales enablement specialist. I'm about to post a solutions consulting enablement role, and we're hiring an enablement coordinator. Join our team. There you go. <laughs> I hope we'll be on Stephanie's job board. I'm going to reach out to her. That's right. That's right. Try and get a placement sorted. And you probably should get ready for lots of CVs hitting your inbox now. I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> Send them over. <laughs> awesome. And then the last post we wanted to cover was from Todd Capone. What is that all about? Yeah, I think this is actually a great follow-up to that, the CSO magazine, because it's all about creating compelling, unique buyer experiences and tailoring a sales approach to the people that we're selling to. And where we're headed is like, this starts with every single communication to a potential buyer. So this post from Todd Capone, if you're not familiar, Todd is the author of one of my favorite sales books, The Transparency Sale. Highly recommend it. I have everyone on my team who joins read it. It's delivered through the lens of a sales leader, or in this case, a CRO. And it questions whether or not they should be responding to any and all cold outreach from BDR. So specifically calls. So what Todd says is, is it hypocritical for a sales leader to state that they don't answer cold calls? And he says that when he was a CRO, he didn't, and this is a quote, feel as though picking up random calls all day was the fastest path to providing value for his team. And he stated, you know, in his role, he gets up to 150 emails per day and was in 30 meetings per week. And engaging with these calls would have just been incredibly time consuming. But what he did was he used the outreach he received to educate his team and as an opportunity for his team to kind of unpack what's working, what's not. And as you can imagine with any social media post, the comments section is robust and, and lots of differing opinions here. But I think there's something to be said for that highly customized outreach. And I, I think Felix, probably for you in, in various roles and for myself, I get so many emails and calls per day and a lot of them are mediocre. Some are too good to resist. And I am a Golden Girl super fan. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I did have a BDR send me a highly customized email comparing each sales enablement tool to a Golden Girl in detail. And I responded. I took the call. I learned about some new tech. I talked to his manager and I was like, this is amazing. And so again, it's like Ton uses this as fuel for his team to break through the noise. And so again, some folks in the comments leaned into a lot of the topics we talked about today saying, there's a reason why omni-channel prospecting is important. Some people pick up phones, some respond to LinkedIn, and so on. So my question for you is, and it's kind of like a multi-part question, but do you think that sales leaders should be engaging with and responding to cold outreach or using it as an opportunity, learning opportunity for their teams? And do you think the same goes for enablement folks? Like, what is our responsibility in the, the cold outreach world? Well, I think... It's not our responsibility to answer every call, but I do think it is a easy way to stay on the polls and seeing what is happening in that space. But I do think the innovation that is happening in the outreach space is quite limited. So it's not like for every 10 calls you answer, you get two new ideas on how to make outreach more effective, right? Right. I think your golden goal example is really special, but also not very scalable. So I think not at all, not a lot of organizations <laughs> will probably follow the same approach. I do actually like cold outreach that is not too highly scripted, that is actually feels more like a conversation. Yeah. But you can tell within the first five seconds, whether somebody's reading of a template, right? It's that typical 
call center delay. Then you've got the, the background <laughs> noise and then somebody with a thick accent like mine tells you whether you've considered website development services for your business, those kind of things. I do like the ones that are more like a conversation, but I think even in those cases, there is just not a lot of good outreach talent that actually does a good job in reaching out. So I think the good cold outreach I have received and I receive a lot of outreach, I can probably count on one hand over the last 10 years and that's not very good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> to answer your question, I think that it is important to stay on the polls and to see what's happening. But answering every single call is not the best way to do that. So I think it makes sense every now and then answer a call just to see what's happening, how people approach it. But I think, for example, uh, Mark McInnes, which is just another plug for the State of Sales Name and Podcast, also <laughs> going to be on the show this month. So we'll have some of his snippets in the next This Month in Sales Enablement episode. But he's great when it comes to sales development and he really tells it how it is. And he's got some really great methods that work really well in the APAC region. And I think following those sort of people that really tell you how it is and also share what's not working, that's probably a more effective way to actually get that understanding at scale without actually spending all day on the phone talking to call centers. I couldn't agree more. And I love using outreach that I receive to share with my teams to be like, how would you have responded to this? Would this have even piqued your interest? Think about what you're sharing and sending. So I, I love using it as a learning experience. But when the outreach is good, pick up the phone, respond to the email. You know somebody worked hard. But I hear you. I'm excited for that podcast episode. Awesome. So we are running out of time. But before I let you go, Devin, do you have any parting thoughts that you want to leave our audience with this month? Oh, so many. But I think the big one for me is focused on strategic alignment and how go-to-market and strategic alignment can really make or break a company's success. And so it's really making sure our leaders are transparent, they have a vision, but they're working cross-functionally to make sure we are fully aligned so that we can actually build out those coaching programs and the initiatives to drive the behavior change. But many of the articles today keyed in on go-to-market alignment for an organization. And it is my number one area of focus. And I, I just think it's the linchpin to all of the things. Awesome. So what I want to share before I let you guys go, you guys being all of you listeners, I think the single most inspirational piece of content that I've recently watched, which is not a business book or any content of LinkedIn, was the Kanye West documentary on Netflix. Oh, it's really amazing stuff. It's a three part documentary about Kanye West's journey. And he actually had a documentary filmmaker that really committed to documenting his journey really early on in his early 20s, follow him around and document his whole journey from him literally just, just sharing an apartment and doing beats in a little corner of his bedroom to him winning his first Grammy. Amazing, inspirational stuff, really high stakes for Kanye West and really how he believed in himself, I think should be inspiration for everybody. Especially when we talk about stress and sales enablement and the sort of stakes some people have to deal with in their professional life. I think it's always worth remembering that there's a lot of people that have to deal with higher stakes. And I think the Kanye West documentary is something that you cannot miss if you're interested in that. Episode one or two are great. The third one, he goes a bit crazy. So I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> I'll download the first two for my flight tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Might be more of a cautionary tale for mental health awareness, but yeah can definitely recommend it. So Devin, thank you so much. 
Thank you. I'm glad you came back. I'm even more confident that you will come back again next month. I can't wait. Yes. Next one is this month in sales enablement in May. So I can't wait for that one. I'm actually moving house in the next couple of days. I'm literally going to disassemble my desk right after we <laughs> hang up. So wish me luck. Oh my gosh. It's going to be great. Yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed. So is this your, your two-hour break from podcasting for the month? You get to move and then you're back on a, your next podcast. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I might record one on the way to my new place. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I hope everything goes smoothly. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. I'll speak to you soon. Yeah. Next time on The State of Sales Enablement. Sometimes they say attempting to build personas and develop deep acumen for your buyers internally, talking just to internal people, is a lot like asking a bunch of 20-something single men what women really want in a relationship. Considering the recent budget cuts in the enablement space, it is no surprise that in a recent LinkedIn poll, 56% of enablers stated that they plan to increase their ability to create business impact in 2023. I've teamed up with sales enablement legend Mike Kunkel to create a webinar that outlines proven approaches to maximizing enablement's business impact. To watch the seven steps to maximizing enablement's business impact, visit goffwd.com impact. That's goffwd.com slash I-M-P-A-C-T.